And may I begin by well, adding my welcome to Alistair's. It's really lovely to see you. My name is Tim. I'm one of the ministers here at the church. It's good to see you, whether you're with us here this morning or if you just come this evening. It's great to have you with us. And I'd like to invite you now to open your Bibles and turn to that second reading Alistair read for us in 1 Corinthians. And I wonder, I wonder, as that reading was being read out, what was going through your mind? You might think, this all sounds a bit crazy. Maybe you were thinking, this sounds a bit sexist. The head of a wife is her husband, wearing head coverings. Why on earth is this even in the Bible? I'm conscious that as we think about these issues tonight, issues of gender, we're dealing with a subject that we've all got a stake in. We're working through our series in 1 Corinthians, and this is where we've got to. Our verses tonight are challenging both to understand and to apply. But it's our conviction here at Honeywell Church that God's word, the Bible, is good for us. That it brings life. It brings light. And so we prayerfully ask God to help us to understand and to respond. And my aim for us tonight is that we will see in these verses the big thing. That God is calling our life together as men and women in the church to be full of honour and interdependent, flourishing as we build his church together. How we behave really matters because the church really matters to God. So, where are we in this letter of 1 Corinthians? Well, we are in Corinth. It's a port city that was in Greece. And the church there in Corinth, it's a church that is taken on worldly values. It's a place concerned with self-advancement, seeking status in the world, accommodating to the world, and pushing others down. It's a church that is behaving more like an episode from The Apprentice than displaying the gospel they are to believe. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, has been calling the Corinthians away from self-promoting and trying to secure status in this world to self-sacrificial service, to build up the church and for a secure eternity. Have a look back with me at chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, just a couple of verses before our passage tonight. Paul writes, chapter 10, verse 33, Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And now chapter 11, verse 1, Follow my example as I follow the example of, of Christ. And so in chapters 11 to 14, as we work through them over the next few weeks or months, we are going to see how the church is to use its gifts in an ordered way to relate to one another in love and service as God has designed it. And the first issue is how do men and women relate together? 
And we begin by looking at this scene in chapter 11. I'll read verses 4 and 5 to us just to give a bit of a flavour of what's going on. Chapter 11, verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. So, the setting here is a church meeting, rather like one of our Sunday gatherings here at Hollywell. And the question is, how are men and women are to present themselves, head covered or uncovered, when they are praying and when they are prophesying. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to be thinking through a lot more thoroughly, a lot more on what prophecy exactly is. But it will help, I think, to have a bit of a flavour now as we look at this passage tonight. There will be different views among Bible-believing Christians about what prophecy in Corn Corinthians refers to. Indeed, there may be different views among us here tonight, I imagine. But let me just point to a couple of key verses just to help us get a sense of it all. So if you've got your Bibles, may I invite you to turn to chapter 14 and verse 3. Paul writes, chapter 14, verse 3, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. So prophecy is something that builds up and strengthens. It's something that will encourage those who hear it. It's something that will bring comfort to those who hear it. And if you jump down at verse 24 of chapter 14, we are told that prophecy may also convict the unbeliever of sin. It may say to someone, You need to turn to Jesus. So, while prophecy appears to be separate from the main authoritative teaching within the church, but given its effects, it seems to have a gospel content expressed and applied in different ways. So, functionally, prophecy might be a bit like what's happening in our home groups, in Flourish, in our men's breakfasts, in iWomen, or in our student Bible study groups, as we discuss and as we share insights and applications of the gospel. It might be hearing from a mission partner, or from a member being interviewed on a Sunday morning or evening. Conversation that applies the gospel. Or even perhaps it might be the gospel being applied in discussions at our church elders, deacons and members meetings. And if you put it like that, then it's just worth saying that there could be a form or function of prophecy going on at Honeywell that looks similar to how it looked back then in Corinth, if we think about it in those terms. And this passage here in chapter 11 is very clear that both men and women should be doing it. But there is a way we must do it. We must honour the God-given differences between men and women. And that is so we will all flourish in an interdependent way, working together for the building up of the church. And Paul says to do this, we need to start by looking at and understanding headship. 
So if you've got your sheets in front of you, your outlines, you will see our point one. We need to understand headship. Have a look down at verse 2 with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. Now verse 3, I want you to realise, I want you to understand, it's the same word here that Paul has been using throughout the whole letter in fact. The whole kind of language of knowing. Do you not know? Do you not realise? Do you not understand? Paul uses it, for example, in chapter 6, when he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And it's the same word that's used here. I want you to know, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. We'll spend a fair bit of time on this point. There's a little bit of heavy lifting to do. And then in further points, we'll move on a little bit more quickly, okay? Verse 3 then. Verse 3, it's describing an order in relationships that God has made. An order that is good. Imagine with me a building site, any building site, and there was no order in the relationships between the workers. They just decide for themselves how to relate. And worse still, they do it in a way that just promotes their own interests. So, the concrete guy, you know, he pours the concrete and he sets it overnight. And then the next morning, the umatic drill guy, he comes with his tools and he wants to show off his skills and he really goes at it. He really goes at the concrete. What do you get? Do you get the house that you, the client, has been asking for? More like destruction. God has built order into our relationships and he has revealed it to us and it includes our relationships as men and women. How gracious of our maker to reveal to us how we are to relate in this world. The head of the woman is man. And that phrase is set in the broader context, if you see, of two other relationships to help us understand it. So you see in verse 3, the head of the woman is man, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. There's this order of relationships, headship. And you might be sat there wondering, well, what kind of order is this? What does this exactly mean? Well, we do need to understand what this word head is about. Now, a lot of the time, the word head, in the Greek word, being translated here in verse 3, it literally just means head. You know, head, shoulders, knees and toes. I don't know if that's ever been sung here at Hollywell in the pulpit. But anyway, like the English word head, the Greek word has also metaphorical meaning as well. By far, the most common meaning is the idea of authority and leadership. And I want us to see that is the way that the Bible uses this word head. And that the Bible, when it uses the word head to mean this, it doesn't do it in such a way that means harshness or superiority. And that's really, really important. I want us to see this by flicking to the book of Ephesians 
Two examples from Paul's letters to the Ephesians, I think that will help us understand how Paul is using the word head in 1 Corinthians. Firstly, Ephesians chapter 1. We read in chapter 1 verse 22 of Ephesians that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So, Jesus has authority over all creation and he's described here as head. And secondly, still in Ephesians, but go on to chapter 5 and look at verse 23. Ephesians 5, verse 23. Paul writes, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself the saviour. And so we see there that parallel between husband and wife and Jesus and the church. An authority relationship, but one that's characterised by love and self-sacrifice. Those who have done um, all the word studies on all kinds of Greek literature have said time and time again, that the best understanding of this word head is authority or leadership. But let's be honest here, in 2023, I think this language can make us nervous, can't it? And I think there are two reasons for that. Reason number one, we're conscious of tragic abuses of authority, aren't we? We're conscious of abuse of women by men. And so the idea of authority, it can give us concern, and rightly so. But may I submit to you all, the Bible never condones violence or abuse of women or coercive behaviour. It condemns them. And it shows us that authority doesn't need to be harsh. It doesn't need to be selfish. And that's why the other two relationships in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 are really important for us. The head of every man is Christ. Just think about that relationship. Jesus is Lord, yet his pattern of authority is to lay down his life in sacrificial loving service to serve his church. That's the model that Ephesians 5 gives to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we also read, back in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11, that the head of Christ is God. And that is speaking about Jesus and his relationship with God the Father as they relate in the Trinity. Think. Think with me of Jesus' willing submission to his Father's will, even to the cross, for the purpose of salvation. As one writer puts it, Christ shows us in his relationship to the Father how authority structures can function in a godly, love-based fulfilment of roles, of leadership and authority and roles of voluntary submission. And that's the same in marriage too. Submission of a wife to her husband is always to be voluntary, never coerced, or by force, or by guilt-tripping. So, while we may be nervous about the language of head in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in the Bible, 
I want us to see that authority can be exercised in love and in sacrificial service. And, that how the, and that's how the Bible wants us to exercise authority if we are in positions of leadership of any kind. That's reason number one. Reason number two, while we might also be nervous of the idea of head in verse three, meaning authority, is because we think it can suggest, you know, superiority and inferiority. But that really isn't the case. We know that from life examples. So children, you're at school, right? And your teachers, they may have authority over you, but that doesn't mean you are less valuable than them. It just means they have a particular role in that setting. And again, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul shows us that the head of Christ is God. Is Jesus inferior to his Father? Of course not. They are utterly equal in essence. Fully God, but with different roles. And if you can't understand the verses 7 to 10 of this passage, you may have spotted that Paul echoes Genesis chapter 2, which Alistair read to us earlier in the service. Genesis 2 verse 18, we see a pattern. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so there's a general pattern that men and women are created to work together in complementary ways in the commission to rule God's world. And again, it's worth saying that the idea of helper and compliment is not a demeaning one, far from it. Doctors are helpers, but they are not less valuable than patients. And God himself is a helper. He is described in Isaiah 41 as God's people's helper. He, he says, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. And that doesn't make him less valuable, does it? So, woman was made as the perfect helper for man to work in God's world. And Genesis 2 states this generally and shows that it has a particular expression in marriage. So where does this leave us in 1 Corinthians 11? Well, if you look down in your Bibles, you might see a footnote for verse 3. In 1 Corinthians 11, you might see a footnote for verse 3 and it says, the words used for man and woman could also be used to mean husband and wife. That's how the ESV translation uses it. Meaning Paul could be only be talking to married couples throughout this whole passage. Now I've got to say, while I think the primary audience in mind here are married couples... But given that Genesis 2 background, we should all in some way acknowledge that the general creation pattern is that men and women are created with a complementarity. We should all seek to recognise that as we relate to one another in the church. What that doesn't mean, to be crystal clear, what that doesn't mean is that all women should then submit to all men. Not at all. That is for marriage. Rather, rather, I wonder if it means that as we gather to worship God together, we should be desiring to honour the differences that God has made. So that's, that's the heavy lifting that we've done, looking at verse 3. 
Let's now turn to verses 4 to 6 to see this more in action. We need to understand headship, says Paul, so that, point two, our gatherings are full of honour. The presenting issue here is whether the head is covered or not. But the point is about embracing God's created order so that our life together flows and it hums that there's honour and not shame. I was walking around the university campus earlier this week and I heard a squeaky, rattling noise behind me. I turned round and I saw someone riding a bike and it was a rather rusty bike, mind you, and it didn't look very easy to ride on. Well, this is about avoiding being a church family that is full of friction like the rusty bike chain and instead lining up with God's created order so that we hum like a well-oiled machine, that we can work in unity to build the church. So, men, verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. Well, what might this covering be? It might be long hair, it might be a material covering of some kind, And wearing it when praying or prophesying dishonours Jesus Christ. Why? Well, it might be because covered heads were common in some pagan temples. And so imitating that practice dishonours Jesus. But I wonder if, given Paul's focus on male and female, on gender differences, and his desire that they're honoured, Well, I wonder if this is a symbol that somehow suggests an unwillingness for a husband or a man in the church to fulfil his God-given responsibility. If you like, it's something that's saying, me first, my concerns, it's about me. And it's not an attitude of service. Ignoring the call to love his wife self-sacrificially to ensure she's flourishing within the gathering. Well, what about women in verse 5? Verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. And again, the covering in view here, it could be hair being worn up, or it could be a headscarf or a veil of some kind. To wear hair down in Corinth in the first century, it would have been a sign, a signal of sexual availability. To have a covering was a sign of modesty. And so to be praying or prophesying in the church for a woman with her hair down or with no hair covering well, it would have bring shame on her husband, not just within the church, but also in society at large. It would be saying, I am turning away from my head. I am making much of myself. I am flaunting myself. Self-promotion that brings shame. And verse 6 seems to drive this home even further. Verse 6, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off for her head shaved, then she should cover her head. It's a kind of circular argument. 
But the shaved head would have had connotations of sexual immodesty or adultery. And so the logic goes a bit like this for verse 6. Well, if you won't wear a head covering, women, then shave your head. But seeing as that's, that's equally shameful, then to honour your husband, wear a head covering. Do you see the argument that Paul is making there? But does this mean, does this mean that to honour one another in the church today, at Hollywell Church in 2023, to acknowledge our God-given roles, does it mean that we need to all start wearing head coverings? Well, well, if I, I think if your conscience constrains you to do so, as you are, you know, as you as spiritual head, you want to honour your spiritual head, then you should not go against your conscience. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing to be seeking to honour others within the church. But I do think here, in these verses, this is a place where the instruction is particularly culturally specific to Corinth then. And so, it's a principle that we need to then think through for our culture today. And how do we apply it within Hollywell today? So the question becomes this. Is there a similar visible cultural symbol available to us within the UK in 2023? To be honest, I'm not sure if there really is. It could be taking a husband's surname when getting married, maybe. For some, that might be a particular way of honouring one's husband within British culture. But here... There are enough cultures here at Hollywell today for that not to be the case in many cultures. Well, I wonder if today it's particularly expressed in a certain attitude or a posture in the words that we say and the way we act. So, for husbands, how's our behaviour in our speech towards our wives? Does it honour our head? Does it honour Jesus Christ? Are we making the effort to lead, to take the initiative in loving sacrifice, to make it easy and joyful for them to engage within the life of the church? Thinking more broadly than marriage, well, how would this look? Perhaps in home groups, perhaps in home groups, as we, as male leaders, Are we willing to serve so that in discussions they flow and that we're conscious to ensure that the voices of women are heard regularly? And wives, I think this looks like a posture of speech as well, which encourages and respects the husband's headship as we gather in the church. And perhaps more generally, women avoiding the attitude that says, me first being unwilling to give space for men in the church to lead when that's their God-given role. It might look like contributing wisdom and applied gospel thinking in a meeting or a Bible study, whilst also allowing the men in the church leadership to fulfil their role. In all of these, in all of these, I stand here and I praise God, just as Paul praised God in verse 2, because I have seen wonderful examples within the congregation here at Hollywell of this being put into practice. 
But there are some suggesting outworkings of what it looks like. And I'm nervous of being overly prescriptive because it will look different in different marriages and in different church contexts, won't it? But it's all about seeking with God's help to live out the principles. And I do wonder if the key thing is not so much about getting it exactly right, but seeking to do it because it reflects the remarkable God-given equality and difference between men and women in the church. Full of honour. And that's where Paul goes next with our third heading on our outlines tonight. Paul says, verse 7, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Now, these verses, they're unpacking Genesis 2. And essentially, they are saying, men, don't cover your head. Don't ignore your responsibility in marriage or in the church, because you are living out a calling that brings glory to your maker. Man is the image and glory of God, says Paul. But then we also see that woman is the glory of man. And I wonder, do you notice what word is missing? I wonder if you can do spot the difference. Has anyone spotted it? Image. It doesn't say here that woman is the image of man and that's because woman just like man is made in the image of God it's equality and diversity rooted in God's good creation Genesis 1 says God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them. And that is where we see the foundation in the gospel, in the world, for equality and difference. Men and women have an intrinsic equal dignity and value because we're all made in the image and likeness of our God. Our culture says you cannot be fully different and fully equal at the same time. The gospel says, have both equality and difference made in the image of God, but with order. Look down at verse 8 again. Man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Man is the image and glory of God. And when he honours his head, Jesus Christ, in marriage and in the church, The glory shines. And woman is the glory of man. And when she honours her head, whether it's in marriage or in the church, the glory shines as men and women work together as God designed us to do. And so Paul says, verse 10, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her own head displaying the attitude of honour in the church. 
But what have angels got to do with it? Seriously. I mean, we could ask Robbie Williams. I'm loving angels instead, etc. It seems like one of those phrases that you could use as a kind of answer to a question when you really haven't got a good reason. For instance, why didn't you take the bins out last night? Uh, because of the angels? What is Paul talking about here? What was he saying? Well, actually, back in chapter 4, verse 9, he mentions them again, the angels, and they are described here as witnesses to his ministry. Paul, he is an apostle and he is a true servant-hearted gospel minister and he's been watched by men and angels. And I wonder if this just reminds us all tonight that the angels are watching, that they delight to see men and women honouring their God-given heads, participating in the life of the church so that they flourish in the interdependent work of building up the church. And that's where Paul goes for our final point tonight. Looking at verses 11 to 16. Look down at verse 11 with me here. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. That phrase, in the Lord, it comes up later in 1 Corinthians, towards the end of the letter, in chapter 15, verse 58. Paul says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And so Paul is saying that God's work in the church needs both men and women involved. Both should be involved in prayer and in prophecy when we gather together. But in such a way that reflects the Christ-honouring pattern that we've been looking at. Now verse 11, it could, it could be translated more literally. It could say this, Woman is nothing apart from man. Nor is man anything apart from woman. So any agenda that seeks to disregard the roles of men in marriage and church leadership, well, it actually harms church. It's a striking implication to ponder over, isn't it? The rusty bike chain. But men, if we think we can do it alone... Then Paul says, remember your mum. Remember the womb that bore you. You are not independent. The ministry of women in the church in Hollywell is absolutely essential. We work in interdependence, not independence. According to the order that God has given. Because all things are from God. A very brief line, but very powerful words. Who are we? Who we are? To be either male or female, it's a gift from God. To be called into his church is a gift of his grace. We are his. We are made by him. 
We are made for him. And that gives us humility to do things his way. So, where have we got to so far? We said that we need to understand headship so that our gatherings are full of honour, reflecting the God-given equality and difference between men and women so that we all flourish interdependently with purposeful interdependent flourishing together. And so Paul says, will we embrace this? As we close, Paul says, well, what do you think? What do you think? Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Weigh it up. The language of prophecy, actually, in chapter 14, talks about weighing up prophecy. And it's the same language as here. What do you think? We need to weigh this up. Judge for yourselves, says Paul. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? In other words, will you embrace this, says Paul? And it's as though that he tries to answer his own question in verse 14. Verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. It seems to be his final point of reasoning. And the language of nature here is speaking of the natural knowledge that we all possess, that men and women are different. It's not that he's saying nature tells us exactly how long hair should be. Everyone can grow long hair to a certain extent for a while. I mean, we read in the Bible about Samson as well. I mean, he had pretty decently long hair, we're told. The author Kevin DeYoung summarises this really well. I think this is really helpful, what Kevin DeYoung says. He says this, Nature doesn't teach us how long hair should be. Culture teaches us the acceptable hair lengths of men and women. Nature teaches us that men are to adorn themselves as men and women as women. So in our culture today, hair length is not tightly connected to being man or woman. And I don't think this passage puts any burden on us to have particular hair lengths. But the point is there, there is male and female, and we know it. And however much culture around us at the moment might be trying to say otherwise, we know there is male and we know there is female. Nature tells us. Just ask the person on the street, uh, in Tesco, or wherever you do your work, or where you have your education, there is male and there is female. We know it. It's hardwired. Having said that, I'm just conscious that there may just be someone sat here tonight or know of someone else in their lives that is stressed or confused about their gender. Please, can I say something to you? Please, may I say, this passage is actually very good news for you. The gospel of Jesus freed you from the burden of looking within to try and find your identity. 
The gospel says, your maker has given you your identity. He didn't make a mistake when he made you. You're made in his image, in his likeness, male or female, as you were born. He offers you liberation from the prospect that hormone therapy or surgery might be your only hope and way out. He holds out to you a true hope, an everlasting hope, and is inviting you to come to Jesus, who has done everything necessary so that you might flourish as the man or woman that you have been made to be in this life and for eternity. If you've got uh, questions about that, and if it's something that's very personal to you or someone that you know, please come and speak to me and let's talk about it and let's pray through it. Okay, I'd love to talk to you some more about that. For all of us here though tonight, the question is this. Will we embrace God's order? This is the pattern for all the churches, for God's church. Will we, as Hollywell Church, keep prayerfully seeking to live this out so that we all flourish in the interdependent work of building God's church together? How we behave, says Paul, as a church really matters because the church matters to God. So in all this, let's seek to honour Jesus Christ, who is our perfect head. Why don't I pray and then we will sing. We praise you, Lord, that through the Lord Jesus we see what it looks like to be the perfect head and as a role model. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the head of this church, the universal church and this local church in Loughborough. And yet you demonstrate full submission, willing submission to your Father so that we might be saved. Thank you, Lord God, that you never abused your power, but you always used your power for the good of others and for other people's advantage. We pray, Lord God, in the midst of the confusion of these verses, struggling to take it in, struggling to grapple with it, struggling to accept what it says, we pray, Lord God, that in all of this we will be looking to you because in all of this, it is really all about you. You are the head of, our, of all of us, the head of this church. And so we pray that you'll be taking the highest honour in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name, Amen.